This is going to now continue in the book, The Atonement, by Arthur W. Pink, and we continue in Chapter 8, The Atonement, Its Nature Concluded. This was one of the chief ends of Christ's satisfaction saintward, to take upon him the sins of his people and so atone for them that an end was made of them. Those who are not sheltered beneath the precious blood of Christ have to say, Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. Psalms 98. But they who by marvelous sovereign grace have been brought to trust in the land may exclaim, As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Psalms 103.12. Our guilt has all been annulled. We have been completely freed from a deserved punishment. No longer is there a single charge in God's docket against us. Proof of this is that this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sin forever, sat down on the right hand of God, Hebrew 10:12. Therefore, unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation, Hebrew 9:28. Hallelujah. Chapter 9, The Atonement, Its Design. What was the purpose of the eternal three in sending Christ Jesus into this world? What was the incarnation of the Son of God intended to accomplish? What were his sufferings and obedience ordained to effect? Concerning this all-important matter, the most erroneous ideas have been entertained, ideas that direct variance with Holy Scripture, ideas most dishonoring to God. Even where these awful errors have not been fully espoused, sufficient of their evil leaven has been received to corrupt the pure truth which many good men have held. In other instances where this great subject has been largely neglected, only the vaguest and haziest conceptions are entertained. Sad it is to see what small price this vital theme now has in most pulpits and in the thoughts and studies of the majority of professing Christians. Known unto God are all his words, works from the beginning of the world, Acts 15:18. Everything God does is according to design. All is the working out of the eternal purpose which he proposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, Ephesians 3.11. God had a design in creation, Revelation 4.10. He has a design in providence, Romans 8.28. And he has a design or purpose in the satisfaction which was wrought by Christ, 1 Peter 1.20. What then was that purpose? This is not a speculative question, but one of the utmost moment. Surely the right answer to it must be one which upholds the glory of God. Therefore, any answer which carries with it the inevitable calories of dishonored father a disgraced Savior and a defeated Holy Spirit cannot be the right one. Redemption is the glory of all God's work, but it would be an everlasting disgrace of them if it should fail to effect whatsoever it was ordained to accomplish. <coughs> one conception now widely held is that Christ came here to remove certain barriers which stood in the way of God's grace flowing forth to fallen creatures. This theory is that Christ's death took away that hindrance with the divine justice interposed to mercy being extended to transgressors of the law. Holders of this view suppose the great atonement was merely the procuring unto God a right for his pardoning of sin. The words of Arminus are, God had a mind and a will to do good to mankind, but could not by reason of sin, his justice being in the way, whereupon he sent his Christ to remove that obstacle so that he might, upon the prescribing of what condition he pleased, and if being then fulfilled, have mercy on them. Sad it is to find so many today echoing the errors of this misguided man. 
The error of the above theory is easily exposed if it were true that the desire of Christ's satisfaction was to acquire a right unto his Father that notwithstanding his justice he might save sinners, then did he rather die to redeem a liberty unto God than a liberty from evil unto his people, that a door might be opened for God to come out in mercy to us rather than that a way should be opened for us to go in unto him? This is certainly a turning of things upside down. And where, we may ask, is there a word in Scripture to support such a grotesque idea? Does Scripture declare that God sent his Son out of love to himself or out of love to us? Does Scripture affirm that Christ died to procure something for God or for his people? Does Scripture teach that the obstacles were thrown out by divine justice or that our sins were what Christ came here to remove? There can be only one answer to these questions. Again, this theory would reduce the whole work of Christ to a costly experiment which might or might not succeed inasmuch as according to this conception there is still some condition which the sinner himself must fulfill ere he can be benefited by that mercy which God would bestow upon him. But that is a flat denial of the fatal effects of the fall, a repudiation of the total depravity of man. Those who are spiritually dead in sin are quite incapable of performing any spiritual conditions. As well offered to a man who is stone blind a thousand dollars on condition that he sees, as offer something spiritual to one who has no capacity to discern it, see John 3, 3, 1 Corinthians 2, 14. Such a view as this is as far removed from the truth as is light from darkness. Such a view, reduced to plain terms, comes to this, if the sinner believes, then Christ died for him. If the sinner does not believe, then Christ did not die for him. Thus the sinner's act is made the cause of its own object, as though his believing would make that to be which otherwise was not. To such insane absurdities are the opposers of grace driven. How different the plain, te the plain teaching of the word. Christ came here to fulfill his agreement in the everlasting covenant. In that covenant a certain work was prescribed. Upon his performance of it a certain reward was promised. That work was that Christ should make a perfect satisfaction unto God on behalf of each and all of his people. That reward was that all the blessings procured and purchased by him should be infallibly bestowed on each and all of his people. God, out of his infinite love to his elect, sent his dear Son in the fullness of time, whom he had promised in the beginning of the world, to pay a ransom of infinite value and dignity for the purchasing of eternal redemption, and bring unto himself all and every one of those whom he had before ordained to eternal life for the praise of his own glory." So that freedom from all the evil from which we are delivered and an enjoyment of all the good things that are bestowed on us in our traduction from death to life, from health and wrath to heaven and glory, are the proper issues and effects of the death of Christ as the meritorious cause of them all, John Owen. We are now ready to answer our opening question, the design of Christ's satisfaction was. Number one, that God might be magnified. The Lord hath made all things for himself, Proverbs 16:4. The great end which God has in all his works is the promotion of his own decorative glory. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Romans 11:36. It must be so. There is nothing outside himself which can possibly supply any motive for him to act. To assert the contrary would be to deny his self-sufficiency. The aim of God in creation, in providence, and in redemption is the magnifying of himself. 
Everything else is subordinate to this paramount consideration. We press this because we are living in an age of infidelity and practical atheism. God predestinated his people unto the glory of his grace, Ephesians 1, 6. Christ has received us to the glory of God, Romans 15, 7. All the divine promises for us are in Christ, amen, to the glory of God, 2 Corinthians 1, 20. The inheritance which we have obtained in Christ is in order that we should be to the praise of his glory, Ephesians 1.12. The Holy Spirit is given us as the heirs of our inheritance unto the praise of his glory, Ephesians 1.14. The very rejoicing of the believer is in hope of the glory of God, Romans 5.2. Our thanksgiving is that it may be it may redound to the glory of God, 2 Corinthians 4.15. This is the one design of all the benefits which we obtain from the satisfaction of Christ, for we are filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God, Philippians 1.11. While every tongue shall yet confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, Philippians 2.11. God hath both a subservient and a supreme design in sending Christ into this world. The supreme design was to display his own glory. The subservient design was to save his elect unto his own glory. The former was accomplished by manifestation of his blessed attributes, which is the chief design in all his works, preeminently so in his greatest and grandest work of all. The remainder of the chapter might well be devoted to the extension of this one thought. Through Christ's obedience and death, God magnified his law, Isaiah 42:21. The law of God was more honored by the Son's subjection to it than it was dishonored by the disobedience of all of Adam's race. God magnified his love by sending forth the darling of his bosom to redeem worthless worms of the earth. He magnified his justice for when sin, parenthesis by imputation, was found upon his son, he called for the sword to smite him, Zechariah 13.7. He magnified his holiness. His hatred of sin was more clearly shown at the cross than it will be in the lake of fire. He magnified his power by sustaining the mediator under such a load as was laid upon him. He magnified his truth by fulfilling his covenant engagements and bringing forth from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, Hebrews 13.20. He magnified his grace by imputing to the ungodly all the merits of Christ. This, then, was the prime purpose of God in the atonement to magnify himself. Number two, that the God-man might be glorified. Christ is the center of all the counsels of the Godhead. He is both the Alpha and Omega of their designs. All God's thoughts concerning everything in heaven and in earth began and end in Christ. God created all things by Jesus Christ, Ephesians 3.9, and all things were created for him, Colossians 1.16. As mediator, he is the only medium of union and communion between God and the creature, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him, Ephesians 1.10. Christ is the one universal head in which God has summed up all things. Therefore was the stupendous work of redemption given to him that he might reconcile all things in heaven and earth unto himself, and this that a revenue of glory might come to him. The man Christ Jesus was taken up in the union with the essential and eternal word, God the Son, so that he might be Jehovah's fellow. Zechariah 7.13.7 7. The man Christ Jesus was predestinated unto the ineffable honor of union with the second person of the Trinity. As such, he is the head of the whole election of grace, called by the Father, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth, Isaiah 42, 1. 
as the God-man the Father covenanted with him, appointed him as surety, and assigned him his work. As God-man he had a covenant substance before he became incarnate. This is clear from John 6:62. What, and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? It was as the God-man the Father sent forth Christ on his errand of mercy, and that for his personal glory. As Jesus went out to betray him, Christ said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, John 13:31. Within a few hours his stupendous undertaking would be accomplished. The mediator was honored, supremely honored, by God's having committed to his care the mightiest work of all, a work which none other was capable of performing. To him was entrusted the task of glorifying God here on earth, of vanquishing his arch enemy, the devil, of redeeming his elect. To this he makes reference in John 17:4, I have glorified thee on earth, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. He had completed God's vast design, executed his decrees, fulfilled all his will. Having so gloriously glorified the Father, the Father has proportionately glorified the Mediator. He has been exalted high above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world but also in that which is to come, Ephesians 1.21. He has been elevated to the right hand of the majesty on high, Hebrew 1.3. He has been given all authority in heaven and in earth, Matthew 28:18. He has been given power over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as the Father has given him, John 17:2. He has been given a name which is above every name, before which every knee shall yet bow, Philippians 2:11. Speaking of Christ's finished work and the Father's rewarding thereof, the psalmist said, His glory is great in thy salvation, honor and majesty hast thou laid upon him. For thou hast made him most blessed forever, thou hast made him exceeding glad with thy countenance. Psalm 21, 5 and 6. This was the grand design of the Trinity, that the God-man should thus be glorified. Number 3. That God's elect might be saved. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Luke 19:10. How different is this plain, positive, and unqualified statement from the tale which nearly all preachers tell today? The story of the vast majority is that Christ came here to make salvation possible for sinners. He has done his part, now they must do theirs. To reduce the wondrous, finished, and glorious work of Christ to a merely making salvation possible is most dishonoring and insulting to him. Christ came here to carry in effect God's sovereign purpose of election to save a people already his, Matthew 1.21, by covenant settlement. There are people whom God hath from the beginning chosen unto salvation, 2 Thessalonians 2.13. And redemption was in order to the accomplishing of that decree. And if we believe what Scripture declares concerning the purpose of Christ, then we have indubitable proof that there can be no possible failure in connection with his mission. The Son of Man, the child born, was none other than the mighty God, Isaiah 9.6. Therefore is he omniscient and knows where to look for each of his lost ones. He is the omnipotent and so cannot fail to deliver when they are to deliver when they are found. Observe that Luke nineteen ten does not say that Christ came here to seek and to save all the lost. Of course it does not. Two thirds of human history had already run its course before Jesus was born. Half the human race was already in hell when he entered Bethlehem's manger. It was the lost parenthesis the Greek for which he became incarnate. That is the awful condition in which God's elect are by nature lost. 
They have lost all knowledge of the true God, all liking for him, all desires after him. They have lost his image in which they are originally created and have contracted the image of Satan. They have lost all knowledge of their own actual condition, for their understanding is darkened, Ephesians 4.18. They are spiritually dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1. Totally unconscious for their terrible state, they neither seek Christ nor realize the need of him. Christ did not come here to see if there were any who would seek after him. Of course not. Romans 3.11 emphatically declares, There is none that seeketh after God. Christ is the seeker. Beautifully is that brought out by him in his parable of the lost sheep. A stray dog or a lost horse will usually find its way back home. Not so a sheep. The longer it is free, the farther it strays from the fold. Hence, if that sheep is ever to be recovered, one must go after it. This is what Christ did and which by his Spirit he is still doing. As Luke 15:4 declares, he goes after that which is lost until he find it. But more, Christ came here not only to seek and find, but also to save. His words are, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Notice it is not merely that he offers to, nor helps to, but that he actually saves. Such was the emphatic and unqualified declaration of the angel to Joseph. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save the people from their sins. Not try to, not have to do so, but actually save them. Christ came here with a definitely defined object in view, and being who he is, there is no possible room for any failure in his mission. Hence, before he came here, God declared that he should see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Isaiah 53.10 As the mediator, he solemnly covenanted with the Father to save his people from their sins. He actually purchased them with his blood, Acts 20, 28. He has wrought out for them a perfect salvation, therefore is he mighty to save, Isaiah 63, 1. Blessedly is this illustrated in the immediate context of Luke 19:10. To Zacchaeus he said, Make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. This day is salvation come to this house, for as much as he also is a son of Abraham, verses 5 through 9. Yes, a son of Abraham, one of the elect seed. Therefore, we boldly say to the reader, If ye belong to the sheep of Christ, you must be saved, even though now you may be quite unconscious of your lost condition. Though, like Saul of Tarsus, Tarsus you may yet kick against the pricks. Invincible grace shall conquer you, for it is written, Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. Psalm 110.3 I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. John 10, 10, 11. Here again we have clearly defined the design of Christ's mission and satisfaction. His sheep once possessed life, possessed it in their natural head, Adam. But when he fell, they fell. When he died, they died. As it is written, in Adam all die. 1 Corinthians 15:22. But by Christ... Through his work and in him their spiritual head they obtain not only life, but more abundant life, that is, a life which as far excels what they lost in their first father as the last Adam excels in his person the first Adam. Therefore, as is it written, the first Adam was made a living soul, the last Adam a quickening spirit, 1 Corinthians 15.45. As the father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the son to have life in himself, John 6:26. What speaks of Christ as the God-man, the mediator, as is clear from the words given to, 
but that life had to be laid down, John 10:17, and received again in resurrection before it could be efficaciously bestowed on his people, John 12:24. It was as a risen one that Christ was made a quickening spirit. The first Adam was made a living soul that he might communicate natural life to his posterity. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit that he might impart spiritual life to all his seed. As the soul dwelling in Adam's body animated it and so made him to be a living soul, so the man Christ Jesus being united in the second of the Trinity has constituted him a quickening spirit, that is, quickening his mystical body both now and hereafter. The life of the head is the life of his members. The Christian first has a federal life in Christ before he has a vital life from Christ. Being legally one with Christ, this must be so. When Christ died, his people died. When Christ was quickened, his people were quickened together with him. Ephesians 2.5 It is to this union with the life of Christ that Romans 5.17 refers. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Yes, there is a much more... The abundance of grace is greater than the demerits of sin, and the gift of righteousness exceeds that which was lost in Adam. The righteousness of God's elect far surpasses that which they possess in innocence by the first Adam, for it is the righteousness of Christ who is God. To this neither the righteousness of Adam nor the angels can be compared. Those redeemed by Christ are not only recovered from the fall, but they are made to reign in life, to which they had no title in their first parents. Since Christ is king, his people are made kings too, Revelation 1.6. The same aspect of truth is brought before us again in 2 Corinthians 5.14.15. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one for all died, then all died, and for all he died, that they who live no longer to themselves should live, but to him who for them died and was raised again. Bagsetters in Alina. The American version is misleading here. Many have supposed that the last clause of verse 14 refers to those who are dead in sins, but that was true apart from the death of Christ. Nor does the spiritual death of Adam's fallen descendants render them capable of living under Christ, but the very reverse. No, it is if one for all died, that is, for all his people, then they all died in him. Then in verse 15, we have stated the consequence and fruit of this. As a result of his rising from the dead, they live. His act was representative of their act. The atoning death of Christ on the ground of federal union and substitution was also our death, see Galatians 2.20. So too, his resurrection was representatively our resurrection, see Colossians 3.1. Thus, in Christ, God's elect have a more abundant life than they ever had in unfallen Adam. The same truth is set before us in 1 Peter 2.24, Who his own shall bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness. The first part of this verse has been before us in a previous chapter. The second half of it expresses the divine design in appointing Christ to be federally and vicariously the bearer of his people's sins. Christ's death was their death. They are dead to sins, not to sinning. Let the reader compare Romans 6.2 and the Apostles' exposition in the next nine verses.
Further, Christ's resurrection was their resurrection. They live legally and representatively unto righteousness in Christ their risen head, of whom it is written, He liveth unto God, Romans 6.10. We quote below from John Brown's lucid exposition of 1 Peter 2.24. To be dead to sins is to be delivered from the condemning power of sin, or, in other words, from the condemning sentence of the law under which, if a man lies, he cannot be holy, and from which, if a man is delivered, his holiness is absolutely secured. To live unto righteousness is plainly just a positive view of that, of which to be dead to sins is the negative view. Righteousness, when opposed to sin, is the sense of guilt or liability to punishment, as it very often is in the writings of the Apostle Paul, is descriptive of a state of justification. A state of guilt is a state of condemnation by God. A state of righteousness is a state of acceptance with God. To live unto righteousness is, in this case, to live under the influence of a justified state, a state of acceptance with God, and the Apostle's statement is, Christ Jesus, by his suffering unto death, completely answered the demands of the law on us by bearing away our sins, that we, believing in him and thereby being united to him, might be as completely freed from our liabilities to punishment as if we, in our own person, not he himself, in his own body, had undergone them, and that we might be as really be brought into a state of righteousness, justification, acceptance with God, as if we, not he, in his obedience to death, had magnified the law and made it honorable. God, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, Romans 8, 3 and 4. Here again, the design of Christ's mission is clearly stated. God sent his Son here in order that, number one, the punishment of his people's guilt should be inflicted upon their head, and number two, that the righteous requirements of the law, perfect obedience, might be met by him for us. This righteousness is said to be fulfilled in us because representatively we are in Christ our surety. He obeyed the law not only for our good, but so that his obedience should become actually ours by imputation, and thus Christ purchased for us a title to heaven. A parallel passage to Romans 8, 3, 4 is found in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For he hath made him sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The purpose of Christ's vicarious life and death was that a perfect righteousness should be wrought out for his people and imputed to them by God, so that they might exclaim, In the Lord have I righteousness, Isaiah 45:24. This will come before us more fully when we take up the results of Christ's satisfaction. Yet a few words upon it are here in place. The righteousness of the believer is wholly objective. That is to say, it is something altogether outside of himself. This is clear from the antithesis of 2 Corinthians 5:21. God was made sin, not inherently, but imputatively, by the guilt of his people being legally transferred to him. In like manner, they are made the righteousness of God in him, not in themselves, by Christ's righteousness being legally reckoned to their account. In the repute of God, Christ and his people constitute one mystical person. Hence it is that their sins were imputed to him, and that his righteousness is imputed to them, and therefore we read, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth, Romans 10.4. For Christ 
also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, 1 Peter 3.18. This wondrous declaration gives us a remarkably clear view of the substitutionary punishment which Christ endured with the design thereof, namely to restore his people to priestly nearness and service to God. Four things in it are worthy of our most close attention. First, Christ suffered. Sin was the cause of his suffering. Had there been no sin, Christ had never suffered. To suffer means to bear punishment. As in ordinary speech we say, a child suffers for the uh, sins of its parents. Christ suffered for us the whole election of grace. It was for their sin he was penalized. Second, he suffered once. This must be understood to signify that his suffering was confirmed to the three hours of darkness that means once for all, as in Hebrews 9:27-28, The suffering which pervaded the whole of Christ's earthly life culminated at the cross. That suffering was final. His all-sufficient atonement possesses eternal validity. Third, Christ himself was personally sinless. It was the just or righteous one who suffered. To affirm that he was righteous means that he was approved of God as tested by the standard of the law. He was not only sinless, but one whose life was adjusted to the divine requirements. As such, he suffered the pure for the impure, the innocent for the guilty. His sufferings were not on his own account, nor were they from the inevitable course of events or laws of evil in a sinful world, but they were the direct and necessary consequence of his vicariously taking the place of his guilty people. Christ received the punishment they ought to have suffered. He was paid sin's wages which were due them. Fourth, the end in view of Christ's substitutionary sufferings was to bring his people to God. This was only possible by the removal of their sins, but separated them from the thrice holy one. Isaiah 59.2 By his sufferings Christ has procured for us access to God. But in Christ Jesus ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ, Ephesians 2.13, that he might bring us to God is the most comprehensive expression used in the scripture for stating the design of Christ's satisfaction. It includes the bringing of his people out of darkness into marvelous light, out of a state of alienation, misery, and wrath into one of grace, peace, and eternal communion with God. By nature they were in a state of enmity, but Christ has reconciled them by his death, Romans 5.10. By nature they were the children of wrath, Ephesians 2.3 obnoxious to God's judicial displeasure, but by grace they have been accepted into his favor. Romans 5.2 By nature they were spiritual lepers, but by one offering Christ hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Hebrew 10.14 Here then, in brief, is the divine design and the satisfaction of Christ that God himself might be honored, that Christ might be glorified, that the elect might be saved by their sins being put away, and abundant life being given them, a perfect righteousness imputed to them, and their being brought into God's favor, presence, and fellowship. Chapter 10, The Atonement, Its Efficacy. In our last chapter, we considered the divine design in Christ's satisfaction. In this, we propose to show from Scripture that that design must be accomplished. Two widely differing views have been taken concerning the affectation of what the meditorial work of the Lord Jesus was meant to achieve. Some have affirmed that the atonement possesses only a conditional efficacy, others that it is vested with an infallible efficacy. Those two views are known as the Armenian and the Calvinistic interpretations. They are completely antagonistic and utterly unreconcilable. 
the difference between them is that of truth and error, light and darkness, Jehovah and Baal, God and the devil. Before attempting to set forth some of the sure ground on which rests the certain accomplishment of God's purpose in the obedience and suffering of Christ, we will first glance briefly at the contrary view and expose its fallacy. It is high time that some voice was raised in protest against the fearful perversion of divine truth which are now being given out by many who, though posing as the champions of orthodoxy, are nothing more than wolves in sheep's clothing, blind leading those who follow their pernicious heresies into the ditch. The omnipotency of God is now fretted down to a persuasive power which he brings to bear upon sinners, but which is so feeble that it fails to move the great majority who are subject to it. More than this persuasion must not be affirmed, lest man be reduced to a mere machine. The all-efficacious atonement which has actually redeemed everyone for whom it was made is degraded to a remedy which sin-sick souls may use if they feel disposed to. The invincible work of the Holy Spirit is supposed to be nothing more than an offer of the gospel which sinners may accept or reject as they please. That such frightful errors should now be accepted in churches calling themselves fundamentalists only shows how far the apostasy has advanced. The horrible and blasphemous idea of Armenians is that the wondrous and perfect atonement of Christ has made sure and certain the salvation of none that it has only made possible the salvation of all who hear the gospel. When this possibility is carefully examined, it is found to be an impossibility. A supposed possibility is that fallen man, while dead in trespasses and sins, must fulfill a certain condition, must of himself perform a certain act which God has said to require of him before the sacrifice of Christ can be of any avail. That condition is faith. That act is that he must believe. Now, to reduce the great salvation which Christ procured and secured to a bare possibility is something which is available for everyone but sure for no one is to say that Christ did no more for Peter and Paul than he did for Pilate and Judas. Everything is thus left to chance and uncertainty. To make the efficacy of Christ's atonement depend upon an act of man's will is highly dishonoring to our blessed Savior. To say that the success of the greatest of all God's work is left continued upon the creature's pleasure is most insulting to the Almighty, impeaching as it does his wisdom, goodness, and justice. To teach that salvation lies within the sinner's own power to secure is to flatly deny Christ when he said, With men this is impossible, Matthew 19.26. Alas, nearly all preachers today speak of faith in Christ as a comparatively easy matter, as though it were well within the range of the sinner's own ability. But the scripture teach far otherwise. They teach that man by nature is spiritually bound with fetters such as none but God can break, Galatians 5.1 that he is shut up in darkness, Ephesians 4.18, and is in a prison house, Isaiah 61.1. The salvation of no man is possible apart from the effectual operation of God's invincible grace. To affirm the possibility of an unregenerate sinner believing in Christ to the saving of his soul is to deny that men love darkness rather than light, John 3.19, that they that are in the flesh cannot please God, Romans 8, 8, that the carnal mind is enmity against God. In short, it is to repudiate the fact that man is, by nature, a fallen creature dead in trespasses and sins. Carnality cannot thirst after holiness. An evil tree cannot produce good fruit. A corpse cannot quicken itself. Man's will, like all his other faculties, has been disabled by the fall. His only hope is in the intervention of sovereign an omnipotent grace, that God will perform upon him and within him a miracle of mercy, 
That divine power will lift him out of the grave of sin and make him a new creature in Christ Jesus. Until he is born again, he can no more love God, savingly believe in Christ, or walk in the Spirit than he can create a world. We have not said that faith is unnecessary, nor that God does not call on man to believe the gospel. What we do say is that faith is God's gift, that this gift was purchased by Christ for all for whom he died, and that in due time this gift is imparted to them. As this will come before us again, we shall say no more upon it now. Instead, we proceed to call attention to some of the many infallible proofs which demonstrate the certain efficacy of Christ's satisfaction. Number one, the purpose of God. All the designs of a being possessed of infinite wisdom and almighty power must be fulfilled. It is impossible that they should be frustrated. In Ephesians 3.11, we read of the eternal purpose which he proposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. The context shows what that eternal purpose concerned. It was a dispensation of the grace of God, verse 2, toward sinners. It was that elect Jews and elect Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel, verse 6. It was that these should be partakers of the unsearchable riches of Christ, verse 8. It was that by means of the church the manifold wisdom of God should be exhibited, verse 10. This same eternal purpose of God is revealed in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to, obey, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the purpose of God is absolutely certain of fulfillment. He himself emphatically declares, my counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure, Isaiah 46.10. He insists that there is no wisdom, nor understanding, nor counsel against the Lord, Proverbs 21.30. Neither the malice of man nor the enmity of Satan can prevent the infallible accomplishment of whatsoever God hath ordained. To affirm the contrary is blasphemy. In Proverbs 19.21 we are told that there are many devices in man's heart, nevertheless the counsel of the Lord that shall stand. There were many devices in the heart of Pharaoh against Jehovah and his people. Nevertheless, the counsel of the Lord stood fast. There were many devices in the heart of Saul of Tarsus against the church and his church. And though he kicked against the pricks, nevertheless, the counsel of the Lord was accomplished. The counsel of the Lord standeth forever in the thoughts of his heart to all generations, Psalm 33:11. This is the firm and glorious confidence of his saints. No ingenuity of man and no plotting of the devil can overthrow it no, nor so much as hinder it. Our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Psalm 115.3 Hath he from the beginning chosen us unto salvation? Second Thessalonians 2.13 Then saved we must be. Hath he predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will? Ephesians 1.5 Then that will must be fulfilled. God's purpose is immutable, Hebrews 6.17, invincible, Psalm 2.6, triumphant, Isaiah 14.26.27. Before there can be the slightest failure in the accomplishment of the divine design in the atonement of Christ, God must cease to be, but this is impossible. Number two, the covenant of God. Now, it is obviously impossible to have any clear views of what the Lord Jesus died to achieve if we have no real knowledge of the eternal agreement between the Father and the Son in fulfillment of which his death took place. Yet, today, deplorable to say, even the great majority of those considered evangelical, to mention no others, have scarcely any such knowledge, the very fact that the covenant 
was proposed, accepted, and drawn up before the foundation of the world proved beyond all shadow of doubt that it was unconditional so far as man is concerned, for he then had no existence. Therefore, he cannot be a party to it, even though his eternal well-being is the object of it. It must be omitted that, in effecting salvation, God acts agreeably to a preconceived plan or design arrangement. We say must, for to deny this is to impute to the infinity-wise God conduct such as is found only among the most thoughtless and foolish among men, conduct such as is exemplified in no other department of his works, for in all of them we discover such order and regularity as clearly evince the existence of an original plan of or design. Hence, to direct attention to the everlasting covenant is but to show that God is now working according to an eternal purpose. The scriptures plainly represent the divine persons as entering into a federal agreement for the salvation of men. In that covenant, the Father is a representative of the Godhead and the Son the representative of those who are to be redeemed. He is on that account called the surety, Hebrews 7.22, and mediator, Hebrews 8.6, of the covenant. Whatever he did as surety or mediator must, therefore, have been done in connection with the covenant. The great architect of the universe drew up his plans before ever a single creature was brought into existence. Everything concerning Christ and his church was firmly settled beyond possibility of alteration. All that concerns the being and well-being of his people is done according to God's covenant enactment. As Ephesians 1.11 declares, God worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Yes, he will ever be mindful of his covenant, Psalm 1.11.5. There were no contingencies, no uncertainties, no pre-adventures. All the affairs of the elect were settled by the mutual consent of all the persons of deity. The Father made choice of the elect, Ephesians 1.4, the Son accepted that choice, John 17:10, and the Spirit recorded it in the Lamb's Book of Life, Revelation 13:8. The Father decreed salvation. The Son consented to the purchase to purchase it. The Spirit pledged Himself to the communication of it. Now, as stated in an earlier chapter, a covenant is an agreement between two parties who are under mutual engagements. Something is to be done by one of the parties, in consequence of which the other party binds himself to do something in return. When a master, for example, enters into an agreement or covenant with a servant, he prescribes certain duties to be performed by the servant and promises to recompense him with suitable wages. By consenting to the compact, the servant becomes bound to perform the stipulated work, and the master is bound to bestow the reward when the term of labor is finished. Such an agreement, such a compact, was entered into between the father and the son before the foundation of the world. Clear proof of this is found in Isaiah 49:119 and 2 Timothy 1:9. In Isaiah 53:10-12, we have recorded the promises which God made to the mediator. In John 17:24, we hear Christ putting in his claim to the fulfillment of that promise. The covenant is ordered in all things and sure, 2 Samuel 23:5. It is sure in its ordinations, operations, communications, preservations, and consummations. Yes, it is a salvation worthy of God. Well might the late Joseph Iron say, Oh, the vast importance of getting at and possessing an infallible Christianity. The devil knew well of what worth the importance that word was, and therefore he carried it off to Rome, that the vilest of wretches might claim it as theirs and talk about infallible heads and infallible decrees, and infallible counsels and infallible vicars of Christ. I wonder the earth does not swallow them up as it did Korah, Dathan, and Abram. It is such blasphemous presumption. 
They talk about infallibility and then they run away to Gaeta to take care of it. They talk about infallibility and then are obliged to have an army of infidels from France to reestablish and to preserve it. I would not give a straw for such infallibility. I want the infallibility of the throne of God, the infallibility of the existence of deity, the infallibility that is sworn to by the persons of the Godhead that is ratified in the oaths of his word, embraced and enjoined in my own soul, all the members of Christ secure in his hands, so that none shall pluck them thence, all the purposes of grace infallibly settled, and all that the Father gave him be infallibly brought home to behold his glory and see him as he is. The satisfaction of Christ was the one and only condition of the covenant. It was stipulated as a condition of his having a seed to serve him, that he should make his soul an offering for sin, that he should bear their iniquities, that he should pour out his soul unto death. In reference to this, we find him saying to his apostles on the eve of his crucifixion, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Matthew 26:28. The blood of Christ was not shed by accident, nor was it poured out at random or on a venture. No, he laid down his life by commandment. He had received orders from his father so to do, John 10:18, and the blood of Christ was the sealing of the covenant, and by it he has actually purchased to himself the church of God, Acts 20:28. 20, this Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, 
as it is well known and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.